Grace, mercy, and peace are yours. From God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are, are finishing up the story of Ruth today, chapter 4. Uh, we'll be going through it verse by verse. If you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 415 in the Pew Bibles. You're certainly welcome to listen, or if you'd like to take out your phone, uh, you're not going to hurt my feelings if you have your phone out looking through the Bible either, so I'm happy to have you do that as well. As we've walked through the book of Ruth, we, we've gotten to see a, a process that has gone uh, from tragedy in chapter 1, where uh, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons, to ultimately what we're going to see in chapter 4, the triumph. We saw Ruth go gleaning in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, Boaz and Ruth getting together, and that's where we're going to pick up the story in chapter 4 today with a special blessing, a special child that God gives to Ruth and to Boaz and to Naomi me and really ultimately to you and me as well. I think I can say this without hesitation. A baby changes everything, right? Maybe particularly if it's your first child. I had a chance this week to visit the hospital for someone who had their very first child and, and I can tell you that there are lots of things that change when that first baby comes. Whether it's having to have diapers on hand or change clothes or now there's a car seat and all kinds of things that you have to carry along with you when you leave the house. Then there's the feedings and a sleep schedule that might not be exactly what you want it to be. Yeah, there's lots of different things that change when a baby comes. But would you also, if you've had experience with it, agree with this? The joy changes too. The joy of having that little bundle that God has brought into your life uh, to care for, to love, to raise. Yeah, a baby changes everything. And I think any parent could say that when they have a child. A, a baby changes everything. But I'm going to submit to you today, offer to you today that this baby, the baby that God gives to Ruth and to Boaz, really did change everything. And not just for Ruth and Boaz and not just for Naomi, but ultimately, as we're going to see before the end of the chapter, even for people like you and me, as that baby's descendants went through the generations to bring us to the Savior that we need. That's what we're going to focus on today as we finish up with Ruth chapter 4, this special blessing that God gives. Yes, first of all, for, for Boaz and Ruth, but, but then for Naomi, and then ultimately for us as well. Can I direct your attention to Ruth chapter 4? We're going to look at the first six verses of Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and, and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. 
You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It's quite a bit to unpack in those six verses, but, but if, you, if you go back to chapter 3, what you'll discover is, is when Ruth really proposed to Boaz, and Boaz agreed that he was going to marry her, he had told her he had one piece of unfinished business before that could go through. There was someone closer in relation to Elimelech than he was, a kinsman redeemer who he had to go and speak with first, and that's the first thing Boaz appeared to do the next morning. Do you find it kind of interesting that that closer relative is unnamed in Scripture? I don't think we can conclude that that he's somehow not important, but we can say his name certainly wasn't necessary for the story to move forward. And it's not necessary because ultimately the man can't take possession of Naomi and Elimelech's land. We'll, We'll talk about that in just a moment. Boaz wants to make sure everything is in order. So he meets at the city gate. This is a place where this kind of business would take place out at the city gate. And he brings 10 elders of the town with him so that everybody's going to know what happened and it's all on the up and up. He presents this closer relative with the opportunity. Naomi's selling her land. It was going to pass on from Elimelech to any sons that he had, but both Malin and Killian have died, and then really ultimately through any sons that the two of them had, but they didn't have any sons either. So at first, the man says, yeah, I'll do it. And you have to understand from his perspective that this was going to be an investment, but he was going to get return on that investment. Here's how it would work. Naomi would sell her land to him for a pretty good price, a price that would keep Naomi in cared for, and financially stable through the remainder of her life. But the benefit that the kinsman redeemer would get is since there was no relative to take over that land, it would ultimately become his property and go to his family for as long as he had descendants. It was a no-brainer, really, for him to say, yep, I'm going to do it. It's then that Boaz informs him of a caveat. Something is about to happen that I think you should know about before you agree to buy this land. I'm not 100% sure why the version of the Bible that we read this morning chose to translate it with the words, you acquire. Because in my Hebrew Bible, it says this, I acquire. And that translation makes far more sense with what happens next. And I'll be able, hopefully, to explain that to you in just a bit. But what was known at that point only to Naomi and to Ruth and to Boaz was now made clear to everybody else. Boaz intended to marry Ruth. And it's that comment that Boaz makes that makes this closer relative say, then it's not for me. I can't do it because I'm going to put my own estate in danger. He refused to buy the land. I'm going to back up just a little bit. We've introduced both of these teachings from Deuteronomy chapter 25 through the course of the book of Ruth. But now they are converging. In chapter 4, they come together. Two different teachings that come from the same spot in Deuteronomy chapter 25. One is called the Leveret Law. The Leveret Law is the brother-in-law law when a single brother, younger than the older brother, If that older brother passes away without any heirs, it became the duty, according to the law of Moses, for the younger brother to produce, to marry his brother's wife and produce the first heir. 
You see, God's reason for doing this was to keep the land that he had given to each family in the promised land with that family into perpetuity. That's what God wanted, to protect people from having financial hardship in the land of Israel. Technically, that law doesn't apply here because neither of the two men are sons of Elimelech. They don't have to carry out the Leveret law. But Boaz is going to do so, and that's what's going to become important. The second law that's kind of converging together with this, you heard the word mentioned, it's the kinsman redeemer law. There was no stipulation on this one. It just was the closest relative had the right to purchase the land to provide for a widow like Naomi, and then ultimately the land would become their own. So understand from this man's perspective, this unnamed closer relative, at first glance it seemed like a good deal. Naomi had no descendants. That land was going to become his. Whatever price he was going to pay was going to be returned. That investment was going to be returned to him. But once Boaz says, I'm going to marry Ruth and fulfill the idea of the Leveret law, what Boaz is saying is this, if Ruth and I have children, we are going to count those as the children of Naomi. And the land is going to belong to that child that Ruth and Boaz produce. That's why the man says, okay, then I can't do it. Because the price that I would pay for it is probably not going to come back to me and then my own estate is in danger. It's kind of an interesting way that, that God provided for people and, and how those two things converge here make this story of Ruth quite amazing, what Boaz is willing to do. Let's see what happens next in verses 7 to 12. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malin's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. There are some strange customs that the Bible records. This has got to rank right up there. When you finalize a contract, there's no signature on a piece of paper. You change, exchange sandals. Can you imagine if we were going to make a deal today and I probably would have brought my oldest shoes to trade with you and hope that we were about the same size, right? It just seems kind of strange to us today. But what's not strange is this. It was a way to make sure that everybody knew this was a binding agreement. This was something that both parties agreed to, that, that Boaz was going to be the one to buy Naomi's land. That's really what, what Boaz does next. He gives this succinct summary of everything that just happened that we've sort of been coming toward this whole time through the book of Ruth. He says simply this, I'm going to redeem the land. 
to provide for Naomi. And I'm going to marry Ruth. And if we have offspring, if God blesses us with a son, then that son is going to carry on the name of his father, Malin, ultimately Elimelech's family down through the ages. That's the summary. What I love is what happens next. The blessing that the elders speak about Ruth and Boaz and everything that's about to happen. Whether they knew it or not, what they actually are doing here is making a prophecy. They first say that they want him to be blessed in having Ruth bear many children for him. And then they want him to be famous in Bethlehem. But that prophecy goes one step further. And it lists an Old Testament story that I'm pretty sure you didn't learn in Sunday school. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing here. It's chapter 38 of Genesis. But it's an interesting chapter, and the reason that they reference that chapter is because the Leveret Law is at work in Genesis chapter 38. And ultimately, Judah has a son named Perez. And through that son, Perez, God carries on the line of the Savior. And so here the elders are saying, may your children be like that of Judah. Do you remember that Judah was the son of Jacob's 12 sons through whom God promised that the the Savior of the world, the Messiah, was going to come? And so you're kind of getting some inkling, even as the elders offer this blessing, that God has big things in store for any children that he's going to give to Ruth and to Boaz. As unlikely as Judah's child was that he had in Genesis 38, maybe equally unlikely is the child that Ruth and Boaz are going to have. And ultimately, the most unlikely of all is God sending his own son for you and for me. I'd like to read verses 13 to 17 of Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. All right, just a couple of things from this. Boaz did everything that he told Ruth he was going to do. He went to the town gate. He made sure he could take care of the whole kinsman redeemer idea of the relative that was closer. And then God finally brought the two of them together. But then the blessings kept coming because after they were married, soon they found out there was a pregnancy. And that pregnancy resulted in Ruth giving birth to a son. Like any other parents, you can imagine the joy that both Ruth and Boaz felt. But if it wasn't equal, it may have been greater. The joy that Naomi felt at the birth of this son the one that she had longed for, the one that she thought was never going to happen. Do you remember all the way back to chapter 1 where she made this comment, I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. She even wanted her name to be changed to the name that means bitter, Mara. And now God has filled her up again. The women say it so well, this this Ruth, your daughter-in-law who loves you 
and is better to you than seven sons, has now given you the one thing that you were looking for. They named him Obed. Simply means the one who serves. And he, we're told, was in the ancestry of King David, the grandfather of King David. Obed to Jesse, Jesse to David. You know that becomes important for us because we know that it was David's line. God promised David, we heard it in our Isaiah reading from today, that someone from his line was going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. Not just talking about an earthly king, but the king of kings. And so now we have this little secret that we're let in on that this son, Obed, is actually going to be placed in the ancestry, in the family line of Jesus himself. We're getting near the end of the book of Ruth, and, and, and there are lots of lessons that we could glean from this short book in the Old Testament. But I wonder if one of the, the, the best things that we can glean from this story is, is, is just how God is at work, even in the trials and tragedies and troubles that we have in this life. Could Naomi had ever imagined before she went with her family to Moab that such tragedy was going to visit her family? Probably not. Could she have ever imagined that, that after all of the tragedy that she went through, that life was going to turn around again and that God had blessings in store for her? And not just for her, but, but ultimately for all people? God is at work in our lives through the trials and the tragedies too. I know it's hard to recognize. I'm no different from you. The worries, the complaints, the wondering if God really loves me, the wondering if God loved me, why would he ever let that happen? Is he really all in, in control of all things? Does he really know what he's doing? Can I ask you this? Have you ever gone a day without worrying? Have you ever gone a day without some complaint crossing your brain or maybe even coming out of your mouth? It's so easy, isn't it? To think that we know better, that, that we know what's going on and, and it's so easy to forget that it's God who's at work. It's God who has a plan, who got, a God who knows exactly where you are and exactly what you're going through and he knows how to make it turn out for your good. One of the best promises in the Bible, isn't it? From Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. And how Paul backs that up by saying, if God is for us, nothing can be against us. And if he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We're not always going to see it, but we can trust that God is at work in our lives, that he hasn't forgotten and that he is doing exactly what he promised in his faithfulness to use all things for our good. Let's wrap up the chapter with the, the brief genealogy that the author gives us in verses 18 to 22. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Did you recognize those words? They're, the last few verses are word for word from Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And while genealogies aren't always the easiest to kind of work their way through, I think it's important to let you know that this genealogy isn't 
complete. It's an incomplete genealogy on purpose. You see, the author isn't interested in giving us every single person that ever existed coming from Judah and Perez all the way down to King David. That's 700 years, over seven centuries. And only 10 generations are listed here. There were some that were skipped. And, and again, the purpose isn't to give us all of the names that we wouldn't probably know very much about anyway. Instead, the purpose of a genealogy like this is to demonstrate to you and to me God's faithfulness. And when he makes a promise, he does exactly what he says he's going to do. When Adam and Eve fell into sin way back in the Garden of Eden, God promised a Messiah would come. And down through the ages, he narrowed that promise down to a single family, the family of Abraham. It was Abraham that had Isaac, Isaac that had Jacob, Jacob who had 12 sons. And through the family line of Judah, God said this Messiah would come. And here we see proof of God's faithfulness. These names that carry us from Judah all the way to King David, who was promised that the Savior would come from his line. Best of all, we live in the New Testament times. We know that Jesus has come. We know that the fulfillment of these genealogies arrived. He was born in the very same town, Bethlehem, and he grew up living a life that was perfect in your place and mine, going to a cross to pay for our sins, and then rising from the dead to guarantee that those sins are washed away forever. That's the genealogy of Jesus, that Jesus did exactly what God brought him into this world to do, that he took our place, and that because of what Jesus has done, we have the sure hope of heaven, an eternal life with him. Some takeaways from today and ultimately from our sermon series. Number one, God blessed Boaz and Ruth with the gift of a son. Psalm 127 says this, that, that sons are a heritage from the Lord, that children are a reward from him. And then in Galatians, the Apostle Paul picks up on the idea of who we are in relation to God. He says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the special status that God has given us as his sons and daughters. Number two, the special son inherited Naomi's land and was in the ancestry of our Savior Jesus. It was about probably 1,100 to 1,200 years after this that the Apostle Paul could write this to the Galatians. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Finally, number three, Jesus, the son of God, redeemed us and gave us an inheritance with him forever. To the Philippians, Paul wrote these words, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. One more picture that runs through the entire book of Ruth that we should touch on just one last time as we wrap up the sermon series, and that's the picture of redemption. That idea that someone is going to buy something back, right? That's what the word redeem means, to buy back. And what was bought back in the story was the land for Ruth and for Naomi to give them a place in the promised land. But even more, what was bought back was, I suppose we could say, Naomi's joy, her happiness in the son that God provided for them. When we hear that word, how can we not think of Jesus? How can Obed not be a picture of the special child, the special blessing that God has given us, 
in the child that was born in Bethlehem a thousand years later. The Savior who grew up to live for us, to die for us, to buy us back from sin, from death, and the devil. That's what Jesus came into this world to do. Maybe you remember Luther's explanation to the second article that covers it so well. He says this about Jesus. He has redeemed us lost and condemned creatures, purchased and won us from all sin, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood. And it's an innocent suffering and death. That's redemption. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's the child who truly changes everything. Because Jesus coming into this world means not only the forgiveness of our sins, but that he changes everything forever with the place that he is waiting for us with him in heaven. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.